The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Now, my topic is about the think tank. Uh, basically, I want, the book wants to address three questions. First, can China's think tanks, especially because of their rapid, recent rapid development, serve as an important window through which China watchers can observe policy discourse and the decision making in the country. Secondly, is, is Chinese social science research in general and the think tank community in particular dynamic and pluralistic? And finally, does present day China have great thinkers? My answer is very clear to these three questions. Yes, yes, and yes. And uh, as Steve said, uh, this could be controversial, so my presentation wants to tell you why. Now, before that, uh, let me give some background, uh, particular historical background. Uh, as we know that uh, there's an ancient uh, lineage or tradition, and uh, also uh, in terms of more recent resurgence, uh, you can say that the think tank is not something completely foreign. You go back to, to some years ago. Uh, when you visit Confucius Temple, you will know at that time that uh, uh, when uh, Confucius or Mengzi, they are all surrounded by their disciples. Some of them serve as think tanks. Confucius himself could be a great uh, advisor or think tank founder uh, for the, uh, the, the, the emperor or king or whatever you call uh, uh, the system. So it's not a completely alien for China, but certainly in the recent uh, several centuries, China did not continue that. We know that uh, during the first three decades or so uh, in, uh, in the PRC, we see strong leaders for the very weak think tanks. For example, Mao uh, never liked intellectual. And certainly under his leadership, there's no any discussion about the think tanks. And when he launched the Cultural Revolution, he uh, also uh, early on the Great Forward and also the movement to build the so-called interior third front. This is in the 1960s to try to move the major factories from coastal region to inland region, prepare for war with uh, uh, either United States or Soviet Union at that time. These decisions are all made by Mao himself alone, including to invite uh, uh, President Nixon uh, or King Kong diplomacy uh, 45 years ago. These are, again, it's not uh, decided by think tank or recommended by think tanks, even not recommended by his advisors, just the top leader decides uh, himself. The same thing with Deng Xiaoping, although Deng Xiaoping really improved the role of intellectuals, he started to respect intellectuals, so it really changed the uh, Mao's uh, policy, uh, anti-intellectualism. And uh, on the other hand, he would rather listen to his daughters than any other scholars. And this is the main source for his advice. Uh, so, for example, the, uh, the, his launch of reform, especially special economic zone in Shenzhen and later on in Shanghai, and also that the sending students to study in the West. You know, I'm one of the beneficiaries of the, uh, you know, really several million people now. Uh, also, the decision just by, made by Deng Xiaoping alone. Maybe he got some of the recommendation uh, by one or two intellectuals, but largely, his decision, he even could, you can even say he thought about that, he just used intellectual information for his uh, major policy move. Now this is a film, film uh, uh, the parade uh, in the celebration of the, I think, 60th anniversary of the PRC. Now, each leader has a, has a uh, big culture, and when the leader's culture comes to the Tiananmen Square, there's a song. Each leader has a song. Mao has the rise of the sun. Deng Xiaoping, the song is called Story of the Spring. I always uh, fascinated by the, the uh, some of the you know the, the what's called the rhythm in the song. Uh, if those of you from China, you probably uh, will know that what I refer to. The song if it goes like this: In the 19, early 1980s, at the springtime, an older man looked at China's map and made a cycle. And that cycle become the driving force of China's economy, the engine of China's economic development. Ten years later, the same old man in his 90s looked at the same map and also springtime made a circle. That circle became the second engine of China's 
in army goes. Now, internet bizarre. That just the whole country, China, the whole development, just an old man in his 80s and the 90s, look at the map, made a circle, this is change. But that's what exactly happened in China. You cannot miss the importance of the leader, having a strong leader, such as, uh, uh, you know, early on Mao and then the reform period and then. Now, these two stories, the springtime, we know that they refer to, what they refer to, the change. The first is the Shenzhen, the fishing village. I was there just, uh, just 24 hours ago, and um, uh, it was a fishing village, most people said, seven years ago. But now become very much like Hong Kong. And uh, the second one is more impressive. Um, we look at Shanghai's photo. This is Pudong, Pudong's development. Of course, that was history. Now it's a different. Uh, people start to uh, emphasize uh, uh, think tanks, especially uh, uh, by Xi Jinping. Now, of course, start with Zhang Zemin and Xi Jinping. Now, but of course, there's some cynicism uh, in both China and the outside world, especially uh, in the Western world, about the same thing. Numerous criticism has certain validities. For example, think uh, tank fever in China is a complete waste of financial resources. Uh, talk about Chinese think tanks only endorse this Chinese term through government policies rather than critically evaluated policy initiatives. And the four Chinese think tanks tend to be set forum-centric think tanks. They only wanted to uh, you know, organize or convene major conferences, not so much about the research-centric think tanks. And that's some Chinese terms like uh, tanks without thinkers, or plenty of thinkers, but a little thinking. Now that tells you that the criticism of cynicism in China. And of course, there's a recent tightening political control. There's no question about that through which the internet security law and foreign NGO laws and the national security laws uh, uh, as China adopted these laws in the past few years. Now, of course, Chinese may uh, argue that it's necess necessary, like the United States, to adopt some of the laws, but at least create some kind of uneasiness at this moment uh, by foreign NGOs or Chinese uh, uh, NGOs. So you do see this uh, kind of criticism, but I think they missed the major point that think tank development is very, very important in China, has really uh, far-reaching uh, uh, you know, impact to China and to outside world. And uh, so this is the background things I just uh, uh, want to emphasize. But I also want to quote uh, uh, some of the scholars, like uh, uh, a Chinese scholar, Zhu Xuefeng, at Tsinghua University. He actually said, foreign scholars superficially consider Chinese official think tanks to be government mouthpieces. But in fact, many of the, these Chinese research institutions themselves may not follow the same ideology. And China's official think tanks sometimes openly criticize government policies. Now, for myself, I follow uh, Chinese politics very, very closely. I certainly agree with him. And uh, now, you look at the, uh, the think tank's role in the recent past, there are a lot of political dissent from the mainstream think tanks. Not talking about the the, the more critical think tank, even from main, main think tanks in the past. The Central Party School and the Hu Yaobang actually is a driving force for political reform. Uh, this is the, 90, the later 1970s and early 1980s. A lot of ideas uh, really come from first from uh, China's Central Party School. Then also in the during, uh, 1989 Tiananmen, we should not forget the think tanks such as the uh, Institute of Political Science and the CARS and Yan uh, Jiaqi, later he became a well-known dissident, still live overseas. And also the other one is Chen Yizhi. They are in the mainstream think tanks, but uh, certainly at that time, they expressed their different views. If happened this 20 or 30 years ago, what about now? Similarly, you do see some of the different views. And, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, and also, more recently, you probably heard the name Yu uh, Keping, the author of Democracy is Good Thing. He's a good friend of mine. And uh, he was vice minister level official, uh, now left the government position, uh, served as a dean at the public policy at Beida. And uh, his views uh, may not uh, you know, uh, uh, be the same with the political establishment. So this kind of dissent uh, exists before and exists even now. So it's really not like a, uh, so that's why I agree with Zhu uh, Xuefeng's uh, comment. Now also think that's important. Uh, the being of China studies, really uh, the giant intellectual shine, the Zhang Qingfei Bank, the two certain center, we are all his students. 
that he once said when he made his 1983 book, he said that China is a journalist's dream and a statistician's nightmare. This is more so for the foreigners, for like people like from outside, and be fascinated by China, but they do not have the reliable data. Now, with China's think tank development, with China's really rapid development of China's academic disciplines, <coughs> that problem actually, to a certain extent, uh, uh, fixed largely by Chinese scholars. So I will explain that in just a few minutes. Now, let me go to the first question that I asked earlier. Now, certainly, it's a very, very important window for various reasons. First of all, I cited in the book, cited the uh, uh, chronological events. I only choose some of them here. Uh, actually, last party Congress already considered think tank, or, the, or they call calling for the improvement of the decision-making mechanism and the procedures exhibiting a greater role for think tank. This is direct language from the 18th party Congress uh, uh, speech delivered by, by uh, uh, top leader. They call calling for the improvement of the decision-making mechanism and the procedures exhibiting a greater role for think tank. This is direct language from the 18th Party Congress uh, uh, speech delivered by, by uh, uh, our leader. Then the important third platinum, uh, in which Xi Jinping made a claim that the building new types of think tanks with Chinese characteristics is part of China's strategic mission. So you enhance to that level. They also talk about soft power, talk about revolving door, talk about uh, established 50 to 100, the, high-end think tank. And finally, uh, Xi Jinping just uh, last year said that calling for strengthening international academic exchange at the research institutions and promoting scholarly collaboration between Chinese and foreign think tanks. That explains that we still got a lot of invitation by China, uh, despite the political tightness, and maybe leave certain door open for think tanks exchanges. Now, these are the things we can listen more. This is from the top leaders, from the government resolutions. Now, Xi Jinping himself um, speak at the, spoke at the same text. This is what happened in uh, 2014 uh, in Europe. And Li Keqiang did several things in that year. Uh, previously, Chinese think, uh, leaders avoid this kind of speech. They, the best they can do is go to universities. But now they went to think tanks Western. Now, this is my famous study by, John, by um, uh, James McCain at the UPenn. Uh, he actually each year gave a report. There's a large number of Chinese think tanks. Uh, according to him, the entire world has uh, 6,800 something think tanks. United States has the largest number of think tanks. You know, it's about 1,800. China is number two, uh, has uh, 435. Now, of course, this is debatable. I mean, how do you qualify the think tank? But uh, again, this is considered as an authoritative and uh, 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 new study. Now, According to Liu Wei, uh, the director of the Development Research Center of the State Council, uh, about two years ago, he said that China actually uh, could have as many as 2,000 think tanks, if you consider, include those who work for the policy planning uh, in our uh, policy research office in the various government. Now, uh, there are some uh, clarification or some groupings. There some of them are the government agencies, uh, some of them semi-official institutions, like CAS. You can say CAS even 100%, but I would say probably uh, semi, because some of their resources now increasingly from, from society, not necessarily from the government. <coughs> and the university-based think tanks, there's a real private think tank that emerged. And there's also foreign joint think tanks. Uh, actually, Brookings uh, established our branch, uh, the Tsinghua, called Brookings Tsinghua Center. Uh, it's a joint venture. The Carnegie also had a branch. Uh, in Beijing, also at the Tsinghua University. <laughs> this is a, a really foreign joint think tanks. And uh, sometimes it's confusing with the other things like business consultancies, although in a certain sense, they should not be considered think tanks. Uh, because think tank is the non-profit, you know, uh, non-commercial uh, uh, kind of uh, policy research uh, uh, institution. Should not be confused with a lobby group or business consultant firms. But in Chinese context, there's still a lot of ambiguities. There's also civil society groups, like Guotou, they also be considered as a think tank. Now, uh, this is you not know, the details. My book has the details. You can still available uh, outside. Um, uh, Tsinghua University, a school has almost, uh, I don't know the exact number, probably 70, 60 to 70 think tanks. 
center, various centers opposite each department or each, okay, let me see. This is uh, actually a few years ago, they already have like 20 or 30, but now I think it's a, a 60 or 70 Tsinghua, we're actually planning to build a building, large, tall building, uh, host all kinds of think tank together. So I don't know whether it's a good idea or bad idea, but that's a, a university. When the university has so many think tanks. Now this is the top non-government think tank, started uh, 1988 by Siyuan, uh, an entrepreneur Cao Siyuan, he passed away yeah, uh, um, a few, uh, few, few years ago. But it's really uh, quite um, good in terms of tax reform, or study Chinese economic reform uh, by Cao Siyuan. And uh, Yuan Yue is our friend, right? he, he conducted a lot of survey, opinion survey, it's uh, really China's uh, galactic and uh, he started in 1992. Uh, 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 Strictly sense, this is more like a company rather than think tank, but uh, they shape public, uh, policy debate. Now, Tianzhe and Mao Yusi certainly always uh, raise uh, some criticism or, or, or voice their criticism about government policy. Sometimes they're banned, sometimes they're open. Now, more recently, you see, uh, like Wang Guiyao, uh, 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 who visited, frequently visited the United States, he was a visiting scholar. Then. Harvard and also uh, uh, Brookings uh, just a few years ago. He established a center for China and globalization that uh, I think many of us visited the same time. And also there's one that's called Pangu. This is not a Pangu a company, but a Pangu Institution. Uh, Pangu Institute and the Taihe Global Institute that Steve and I just visited uh, uh, two weeks ago. And uh, they could run really fantastic conference. They may be weak in the research but they can run in conference. This is called a forum-centric approach. And, uh, and they, get, uh, they can do much better than, than us, I should say. Yeah. Now, what are the factors contribute to the rise of think tanks in China today? There are several reasons. One is the dynamics of leadership politics. They need for legitimacy. They, they want to emphasize scientific decision-making. They want to have their own staff. So it's a revolving door for them. And also China's rise. Uh, the things is become so complicated. There's a necessity and availability in a globalized uh, uh, world. This is including the China's uh, economic rise. You have financial support, uh, money, whether by private sector or by SOEs. And also that uh, um, this financial globalization becomes so complicated, you really should have a special knowledge and, uh, uh, to uh, understand what's going on and then for, uh, can uh, develop uh, policy accordingly. There's also rapid growth of the commercialized media outlets. They want to commentate us, you know. So think tanks, this is the things they want. And uh, uh, like talk show fever, like the newspaper boom. And still, China's newspaper still, most of them still growing. I think very soon, they will experience some problems, this paper uh, 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 media. But so far, it's still okay. And the internet revolution also uh, requires uh, online discourse and some people uh, become self-made think tank thinkers or etc. Now there's retainees, uh, foreign educated retainees, um, uh, they study in the West, they return to China, usually they find think tank is, uh, is the first you know, kind of employment, then gradually they fit in the Chinese society and etc. And uh, some of them uh, serve as advisors. Now it's important to mention during the past two decades, Top leaders' new ideas, they really uh, come from, from the, their advisors. For example, Zhang Zemin's represents, really changed the definition of Chinese Communist Party, uh, uh, largely from the advice from Wang Funing and from uh, Wang Funing's colleagues at the Fudan University. Hu Jintao's peaceful rise of China, uh, you cannot uh, say, um, uh, you really easily can identify Zheng Dijian, former vice president of Central Party School was really the brain for that idea, the peaceful rise. And uh, also Xi Jinping's one built one role and the founding of the AIIB uh, really uh, contributed by Jing Yiquing, who is currently the president, and also the Chinese China Center for International Economic Exchange, so CI, uh, CCIEE. So basically, I follow these think tanks, the major ones, you can trajectory make a trajectory about what the policies you want out, at least uh, particularly the inferential think tanks. I basically, every day, I will have a list of think tanks. I will look at their, their, their website to see that anything going on, any meetings or any 
discussion. That could be extremely helpful. I hope that our China study communities, at least our intelligence community, should follow that very, very closely. Now, revolving though, these are the leaders retired, then moved to think tanks, including famous Zhen Bijian. He's the head of the CCIEE, I just mentioned. Zhen Bijian, uh, currently, uh, he is in his uh, later 80s, still running think tank. And uh, Dai Bingguo uh, is a very important figure as a state councillor, and um, uh, to a certain extent that, that he contributed to the major power relations. And Zhao uh, Qizhen uh, was the head of the state council information office. And uh, he continued to play important role in the people's to people relations. Now, this is the other way. It's, uh, the party leader, current party leaders come from think tanks, including Wang Funing and Liu He. I will, I, I will talk about this just in a few, uh, in few seconds. And the Sheikh Zhang is the Henan Party Secretary. That's one very young picture of Liu He. He's not that old. His hair is totally gray. He's I'm sure you, I just saw him. Yeah, there's a reason. If you do not want people to dye their hair, a lot of them, they are all white. And, uh, but uh, Liu He does not uh, dye his hair. I, I know the reason. So he looks like that kind of old. But, uh, <laughs> was the dyeing the hair you look old? Ask me. Okay. Then uh, Rong Chang is the deputy director of the State Council uh, Research uh, Center. Uh, he actually was a visiting scholar at the Brookings, and um, a lot of opinion leaders uh, was a visiting scholar at the Brookings over the past two decades. <clears throat> they become influential leaders of think tank or even government leaders. Now Wang Funing, uh, this is his background. Um, he actually is a candidate for Power Bureau Standing Committee. He is already in the Power Bureau. Uh, he advanced his career entirely from the same tech world. Never served as a local leader. You know, if you want to be China leader, you usually should serve as a provincial chief or, uh, or mayor or deputy mayor, but he never. Only in university and then same tech. This is entirely explaining his career. He is a candidate for Power Bureau Standing Committee, although I would say 50-50 uh, uh, chance. The other person, Liu He, just mentioned, also advanced his career, very much like his uh, uh, friend Zhen Pei, and also from think tank, uh, uh, the information research, and, uh, uh, et cetera. It's not so much about the government official, but rather uh, advisor. He is, as we know, the chief advisor for Xi Jinping economic affairs. He will be a strong candidate for vice premier and power bureau member. So you will see that uh, uh, these people really not only just a policy advisor, but they are they're becoming policy makers themselves. Now, these are two very important think tanks. If you want to understand Chinese economy, you should follow these two very, very closely. China, uh, Chinese economists, 54, <coughs> including Liu He, Zhou Xiaochuan, Yi Gang, and um, just name it, these 50 people, 20 years ago. I wrote, actually wrote a paper about this uh, institution about 15 years ago. So uh, these 50 people, they're so influential, they're all economists. <coughs> and the, the younger one, this is China's financial, finance for the forum, usually in their later 30s or uh, 40s. Uh, these are the upcoming leaders, and uh, uh, in a matter of uh, you know, few years, they will become influential. So, so look at these economic think tanks. Now, one thing, you probably, some of you know him, he is the deputy dean of the uh, National School of Development at Peking University. Look at this two years ago, more than two years ago, two and a half years ago, he uh, kind of made a recommendation China should establish called the Financial Stability Commission. Just uh, two weeks ago, the top decision adopted that one. That institution will be above the four commissions become the most important financial decision making. But the ideas come two and a half years ago by Wang Yiping. So again, you do need to identify some opinion leaders and uh, these people, uh, what they said, it uh, might highly likely will become reality just in a matter of a few years. Now let me move to the second question. Is Chinese social science general, uh, research in general, and, um, and the think tank community in particular, really dynamic or pluralistic? Many people will be cynical, but my answer is yes. Now look at these different disciplines, like international relations, famous Yang Jie, uh, Wang Jie, uh, Wang Jisi, and Yan Xuetong. Look at the political science, uh, Previously, I mentioned Yu Keping and also Founding. Founding is more conservative. Uh, he's the current director of the CAS in political science. And the economics like uh, Yu Yongbin and Huang Gang, and the look at the law, He Weifang and uh, 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 Xu Xianming. Now, these two people, any pairs, they have the almost completely different views. 
about their discipline, about the relationship, for example, Wang Jitsi want to maintain a relationship with the, in the United States, Yang Xuan said, no, the U.S. should be considered as a major competitor, and that we should be U.S. military to um, defend China's interests, completely different view. And Yu Keping said that democracy is the same, China uh, cannot uh, become a real uh, great nation without democracy, and uh, Fang Ying Zizi will not go that far, and he actually uh, think that the China model and, uh, uh, should be uh, 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 prevail, should prevail. And the economics, Yu Yongding is very, very cynical, very, very pessimistic about Chinese economy. Fu Wanggang always optimistic. Okay. And uh, He Weifang, law, uh, law, law professor, and uh, talk about the constitutionalism is the solution for China's long-term stability. And uh, that Xu Xiaoming is certainly thinking that the parties should still be above like, the constitution. Now, in sociology, this is the area that I just gave a talk in China. I mean, you see Sun Liping is really thinking China, China is big trouble. And uh, society is so divided. And uh, it's very decayed. It goes nowhere. But the other guy, and, uh, I think he's in the Central Party School, and Xie uh, Ziqiang, uh, he said that China, uh, Chinese economy, Chinese society is really become uh, very, very strong. So completely different views. But these people are all quite influential. And actually, I have difficulty to find people to criticize Sun Yiping because these kind of view become dominant view in the discipline. Now, let me also mention very dynamic research in sociology. One is on Chinese feminism. The other is Chinese middle class. Very quickly, go through this. This is famous Li Yinghe. We invited him to speak at Brookings. And uh, uh, this is the, the title of the event, Women, Sexuality. Social change. Were you there and Clara? Were you that in meeting? Yeah. So you can see that it's fascinating. Uh, she certainly learned a lot. She was a visiting, uh, got her PhD from Pittsburgh and really become the first uh, scholar on sexuality. And, uh, and actually, I have difficulty to find people to criticize Sun Liping because these kind of view become dominant view in the discipline. Now, let me also mention very dynamic research in sociology. One is on Chinese feminism, the other is Chinese middle class. Very quickly, go through this. This is famous Li Yinghe. We invited her to speak at Brookings. And uh, uh, this is the, the title of the event, Women, Sexuality, and Social Change. Were you there, and Clara? Were you that in meeting? Yeah. So you can see that it's fascinating. Uh, she certainly learned a lot. She was a visiting, uh, got her PhD from Pittsburgh, and really become the first uh, scholar on sexuality and uh, very, very tough, very critical of the Chinese government policy, but uh, her views actually is still heard. This is a panel by really diverse group of people. They can really talk about uh, a lot of things uh, we, we usually, at Brookings, we usually not talk about that. You know, when talk about the, you know, I don't know, Zi women's uh, masturbation, masturbation, I have difficulty to pronounce some of these things. So they're very shy to talk about that. But they can talk about it for 20 minutes. Then all these 20 minutes, all this laugh, laugh, laugh. I mean, I, don't, I can say it's a never happened in Brookings history. Brookings history. And you can check that video. You will see that old people laugh all the time. And, uh, so, but that kind of things. I mean, that, uh, she was a visiting scholar, uh, and, uh, I think in UC, UC Irvine. But uh, uh, she is a currently associate professor at the uh, Dongshan University in sociology. Now, this is a uh, famous Jingxing. You know, this is most popular talk show, late night talk show. She is a transgender woman, and she did that uh, the uh, sex, uh, you know, surgery operation uh, 20 years ago. And this is what uh, uh, when she was he. Uh, then also, uh, I mean, again, the, the sociology development really contributed to the tolerance of Chinese society, and society becomes so pluralistic. And in many ways, uh, 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 some of the things that are even more advanced than the United States uh, because probably lack of religious, religious things that are in Chinese society. Now, I don't want to go detail. I can talk for a lot about these, these issues. Of course, sometimes there's harassment, but just like the United States, there's a lot of harassment happening, uh, various things. But China, in short period of time, Make so much progress in terms of social tolerance. Middle class. This is the, the articles uh, use that term from the 1980s to uh, later to, to uh, the last decade. And uh, there are so many scholars made their name into middle class studies. I don't want to details. These are so many books I calculated about five years ago. There's a 
almost 150, 120 to 150 books on middle class by various scholars. It's a series that one scholar returning herself, she herself uh, written, has written uh, three books. But the question is how many English language scholar books in the West on Chinese middle class? <laughs> the answer is almost uh, zero. Actually, I wrote the one. <laughs> and early on, I wrote another one in 1997. Um, I submitted to publisher uh, with the title uh, Rise of the Middle Class in Shanghai. This is based on my theory studies, it, it really uh, supported by Doug Burnett. And uh, I spent two years in China in the 1990s. Then the title is Rise of the Middle Class in Shanghai, but uh, got rejected by seven publishing houses. The reason is the same thing. The review said there's no such thing called Chinese middle class. <laughs> and, uh, so that was 1997. Eventually, I published that again with a different title. I think all of you have wrote something nice. And uh, it's called Rediscovering China. But it's really about the middle class emerging from China. China, where people in this country so slow, so uh, have so much trouble to visit some of the concept. Now, that my book in English is translated into Chinese and three years later. Yes, of course, there's a couple of other books. This is by a professor uh, in UC system, Li Zhong. And uh, uh, he, I, I forgot that he or she also wrote that book. Now, yes, or, or heterogeneous uh, uh, in terms of middle class. The second debate involved around the idea that the middle class must share a set of core values, if there's core values, like what? This is the second debate. And the third debate is the concept of the middle class political role and its relationship with the government. We support government, political allies of government, or could potential challenges of government. These are the debates still going on in China. Now, I don't want to go into details about the importance. Then move to the last issue. Does present-day China have great thinkers? Now, this is uh, uh, the whole discussion started about uh, 12 years ago by a famous uh, Chinese uh, scientist that later became the father of China's missile uh, uh, industry, Chen, Chen Xuesen. He asked a question to the concept of middle class political role and its relationship with the government. We support government, political allies of government, or could potential challenges of government. These are the debates still going on in China. Now, I don't want to go into details about the importance. Let me move to the last issue. Does present day China have great thinkers? Now, this is a, a, the whole discussion started about uh, 12 years ago by a famous uh, Chinese uh, scientist later become the father of China's missile uh, uh, industry, Chen, Chen Xuesen. He asked a question in 2005 when in his conversation with Premier Wen Jiabao at that time. He asked why are Chinese schools not able to force the outstanding intellectual giants? And uh, China has not produced uh, world-class scientists and thought leaders. And someone followed that argued some critics Cited the absence of PRC educated Nobel Prize winners in the science, sciences and literature as a key evidence supported Chen Xuesen's critical observation. Now, after he made that speech, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, important things after the debate, you see that the two really China educated, completely China educated uh, people uh, got the Nobel Prize, uh, not mentioning uh, someone earlier. Um, so that itself is a fascinating development. And uh, Yu Keping, uh, the person I just mentioned, he said that uh, China's momentous social economic transformation has not taken place in an intellectual vacuum. China's path to reform and opening up has been a process in which old and new ideas collect, collide, uh, and a continuous process where new ideas overcome the old. Such a great era has not only brought forth great ideas, but the reform and opening up itself is a product of this great liberation of ideas. Again, so I personally also believe that uh, in a country with this kind of change, drastic change, you cannot imagine could happen in intellectual vacuum. The problem is because English dominated the world, sometimes overlooked the dynamism in China. And the Chinese have difficulty to communicate with outside world uh, either. So that's why uh, I try to help with the support of, by my uh, you know, big boss, John Sonten, wanted to introduce more Chinese scholars in various disciplines to American uh, uh, readership. 
these are the four volumes we already published. They all together will be 12 volumes. And uh, on political science, economy, law, and, uh, and uh, philosophy or ethics. Uh, we are work I'm working on the two very extensively with the help of our research assistant on uh, uh, two other scholars, one returning on youth and the uh, 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 on sex and, and gender. Now, so of course, this is conclusion. I want to give uh, more time for discussion. That uh, of course, there's some problems in China. Uh, we, like Brookings, we developed a think tank for you know almost a decade. Uh, last year, we celebrated uh, Brookings' 100 anniversary. But China's think tank's history is just uh, 20 years as a max, or 30 years as a maximum after Deng Xiaoping. But it's still early stage. The real emphasis only occurred in the past four or five years. So I'm not that pessimistic, but it's still they need to change, improve. Like a more balanced and pluralistic approach is, will be more effective. Uh, and also more open intellectual environment is needed. And I'm not happy with the current intellectual environment like many other Chinese friends. A better understanding of the outside world in general and the US is particularly essential. You see that some of the think tank discourse about the United States really not well informed. Partly because American society becomes so complicated, American politics becomes so bizarre, and uh, but partly because uh, Chinese tend to not to do their hard work to follow up closely, and uh, and etc. And they still preoccupied some of the some of the uh, 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 strategic uh, uh, kind of misunderstanding uh, in my view. And the quality of English communication must be improved. And the uh, Chinese like to use numbers that won't be able to run well with its really represents for comprehensiveness. Hey, this is not the American style. We need to use something else. I mean, the Chinese always like numbers. So these are things they need to work on, uh, uh, use more effectively. It's unfortunate that the English word is still dominant word, or fortunately for us. And uh, it is uh, important to understand the difference between art and the propaganda. This uh, I made a speech. And um, you can say that. Um, the all art could be propaganda to the extent. But you cannot say all propaganda are art. And uh, this is so particularly noticeable. Uh, some of the things that come from China is so weak because it's a, such a poor quality. And uh, uh, they may have good point, but it's just uh, completely uh, uh, not uh, well delivered. And finally, I also wanted to emphasize the ultimate improvement of China's image. So as we know, the same kind of approach sometimes called soft power it's more just tactical things. But I strongly believe for ultimate improvement of China's image, not lies about this propaganda, but lies in social political progress at home. Just like Americans, if we want to improve our image, our soft power, soft power around the world, it's not based on what someone said or someone wanted the church to present, but the reality American society you know, overcome its own problem, makes some progress. For more things, to buy my book outside this country. I'm really happy to sign. Thank you very much. So I think you have a sense of the remarkable optimism in this book. Um, let me ask a question that I actually asked during the podcast that Chang and I did right before this which is, there's a chapter in this book which is really wonderful, and it's about one of your authors, Hu Wei Fang, and it's called Fighting for a Constitutional China Through Public Enlightenment and Legal Professionals, which kind of tells you the story. You start the chapter with a description of a meeting at Beida in the fall of 2011. Participants in this meeting, as Chung Li describes it, are directly critical of the Chinese Communist Party's participation in the legal system, that the Zheng Fawei, the, the legal political committee, is far too intrusive. And this whole discussion occurs at Beidang, and it's quite open, and, and it, you said it's televised, I think. Or it's, Not televised, it's, it's but there's a video camera. It's recorded. 2011, could that discussion happen today? <laughs> that particular discussion, may not happen, may not be allowed to happen today. And, uh, but I'm very optimistic. Let me tell you why. First of all, that uh, uh, you know, um, seminar really quite eye-opening for me. But uh, later on, I started to edit Hewei Fang's book again, 
2011, I worked on that book. That book targeted three people. Wang Lijun, remember that? The police chief of Chongqing, the person de facto United States Councilor. This is, uh, actually, I used the one open letter as the, uh, was the, uh, the, the beginning, the, the introduction uh, about the book. It's the He Weifang's open letter to him. At that time, he was police chief. He, under the Washington's instruction, executed his predecessor. Then He Weifang said, what happened to your predecessor will today will happen to you tomorrow. So I use that as the beginning of that book. With, the, of course, with He Weifang's agreement. This is the number one person he criticized. Number two is Bo Xilai. He said, you turn Chongqing as your own kind of kingdom. You completely ignore uh, legal um, uh, 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 process. Uh, that's the thing is not acceptable. Uh, this you, if you uh, is moving to the top, it very much echo what Wen Jiabao said, uh, a cultural thing will come back. The third person he criticized is Zhou Yongkang. Is that time in charge of Zhengbaowei, the, polit uh, the, the politi political science and the law commission. Later, he became a standing committee member, a very, very powerful figure. He, he we found said, I quote, it's only happening in China, the Superior Court judge should report to the police chief. <laughs> At that time, all these three people are in power. He we found wrote that book, Brookings published. A couple of years later, China's history speaks for itself. All these three people are in jail for life. He Wei Fang still can send his Weibo, uh, although sometimes there's some pressure. So my point is that in this particular field, uh, Chinese political development will never be linear. You cannot compare this year with last year, with three years ago. You should look at the trajectory of history. The important thing is people may not be allowed to have that um, that meeting. You can interpret it in a way uh, there's more competition or tension. The government fine. Maybe if you open, then you can continue with uh, you know in some chaos. Of course, I'm not endorse that idea, but you can see the way of thinking. The criticism, the momentum becomes stronger and stronger. So at a certain point, they want to stop, but the doctor they can completely stop this. And uh, yes, official media become controlled, but um, there's always some interesting debate within the establishment. I mean, I'm really impressed, even by official media, some of the discussion, the quality of the, for example, CCTV America. It's not bad. I, I did a lot of live interview. No one tell me that you certain things you cannot say, but I can say a lot of things because my expertise about Chinese leadership. So I really appreciate that kind of things. So again, commercialized media will eventually lead society to become pluralistic. The legal profession is still developing. You, I just went and some of you probably study about the Chinese uh, legal development, especially the law school. I actually know many law school deans. I could say none of the law school deans are really very, very conservative. They all think that the constitutional development is essential for China's development. That gave me hope. You work for one of the great think tanks of America. <clears throat> Would you say independence is critical to Brookings' success? Absolutely. Uh, Are Chinese think tanks independent? Can they, in the current political environment, be independent and perform anything close to the role that American think tanks play? First of all, Brookings uh, has the three words of motto <laughs> is quality, independence, impact. So independence is our middle name. We care, care deeply about that. I have tremendous respect for my colleagues who try to maintain these three things. But uh, let me also make it very clear, we should not idealize American think tanks. Not all think tanks are independent. Some of think tanks have clear party line. 
some of the think tanks certainly driven by interest group, let's face it. And uh, uh, does not mean that they want to undermine the, the importance, the values of independence. Now for China, I do believe that the Cao Siyuan and, uh, and Tianzhe, uh, these are independent think tanks. I also think that some, a lot of independent scholars, such as Yu Keping, He Weifang, and ironically, that the conservative intellectual edge is the minority at the moment. In that regard, I also should show respect to them, because they're minority. <clears throat> ironically, in the Chinese discourse. And uh, so the, my view is to my Chinese colleagues uh, in think tank world, it's not so much you should pursue independence in the short term, because it's not realistic. The government will not let you really become too independent. You will face really uphill battles like Cao Siyuan, like uh, 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 some of the you know, Kenzo colleagues, etc. But the diversity is the value you should uh, uh, seek. Actually, Xi Jinping said that diversity is part of the new think tank development. I'm really uh, uh, happy with uh, when he said that. And so I was at this stage where you have diversity you have competition of different views. The society will moving along. Even without thinking development, Chinese society has already become uh, very pluralistic. So it's maybe not the long-term, uh, maybe it's only long-term goal as independent, but short-term is a diversity. It's a more realistic strategy. Last question for me, because then I want to open the floor to questions. In, um, the Chinese politics in the Xi Jinping era, you have this great data on um, returnees as a percentage of um, members of the Central Committee and alternate members of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. Do you have similar data relating to leadership in think tanks? Oh, yeah. I mean, I did a study about the university presidents and the deans and uh, department chairs. Um, uh, the top schools, like uh, uh, 211, this is the, the key, uh, 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 dominated by foreign educated Chinese, dominated. And uh, also, uh, uh, Xi Jinping actually, um, you can see that in the 19th Party Congress, he particularly paid attention to two groups of people. One is entrepreneurs. These are state-owned enterprise entrepreneurs. CEOs, particularly in aerospace and the airplane industry. These people now move to the provincial leadership, like uh, Guangdong Governor Ma Xinrui, uh, Heilongjiang Party Secretary uh, Zhang Qingwei, and uh, Zhejiang uh, Governor Yuan Xuejun. All of them speak good English, and uh, Yuan Xuejun's English could be environment for native speaker. And, uh, uh, many of them also study overseas. And uh, the other group is the university president, like uh, Chen Jinning, the Qinghua president got his PhD from UK. And uh, his colleague, party secretary, Wu uh, Zeping, got his PhD from Tokyo, now governor of Shanxi. These are all the rising stars. They are all born in the 1960s. Many of them are returnees. Some of them uh, may not be Xi Jinping's protégés, like uh, Chen Yulu, the, the, the currently Deputy Governor of People's Bank, formerly President of the Renmin University. You can see, I can give you the long list. These people move in but for think tanks. Now, the think tanks that are really dominated by, by Western educated people, also as visiting scholars, like um, you know, Jia Qingguo is a Cornell PhD, and uh, also a one-year visiting scholar, and at Brookings, he's running uh, uh, Beijing University's uh, international department, it's also think tank. Okay, Wang Guiyao already mentioned, and then there's the long list of people in the government, outside the government, and etc. So uh, that's a that's a uh, uh, actually I actually hope that there should be more mixed. It's not as good that all of them are Western educated. I think some of the Chinese educated could also contribute to diversity. I think that uh, um, so long you are well informed, so long you are open minded, and also let me also mention some of the Western educated. Uh, Think tank leaders may not necessarily pro US. Look at the Yenshi Tong. Yenshi Tong got a PhD from Berkeley. We had the same mentor, Bob Scalpino. Right. And, uh, but uh, overall, 
I do believe that the majority of people study work in the United States, majority, let me say that, has a relatively bad understanding of the United States and also appreciate the you know, kindness, the sincerity, and uh, the friendship of American people. I think they will have less misunderstanding compared with others. Any guess, by the way, on what the percentage of returnees will be in the 19th party? I can tell you that uh, I have the chart in my the other book. <laughs> yes, I really predicted in that book. It's a book. It's a, a project projected projection. Projection 17.5. 17.5. Uh, but uh, that uh, the book I wrote about it. Yeah, so that's a slow, that's actually a slowing of growth. No, not slowing. It's a slowing uh, the, of growth from the from the party. I can tell you that uh, I have the chart in my the other book. <laughs> yes. I really predict that yet. book. It's a book. It's a projection. 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 Seventeen point five. Seventeen point five. The book I wrote about. Yeah, so that's a slow. That's actually a slowing of growth. No, not slowing. It's a slowing of growth from the from the from the from the sixteenth to the seventeenth to the eighteenth to the ninth. So it's actually slow. The percentage is is going up, but it's going up at a slower rate. Oh well, but these are major major positions. You should look at that. Uh, the, central, the, the central committee. Yeah, just, but the, some of the parties. I'm not talking about the Politburo, I'm not talking about the standing yeah. committee. The Senate, the 300, how many? 300. 376. 376. So uh, it's uh, actually that uh, I still calculating this actually on the airplane coming here. I found that probably will be, will be uh, a little bit more than 17.5%. And because the military reshuffling is overwhelming. I mean, it's, it's uh, almost uh, the whole team. The place. This is just announced. This right. So it is, uh, uh, and always also know the delegates. So uh, basically, you can project uh, yeah. uh, uh, with accuracy. And uh, last time is a 14.5, 18 party Congress. But uh, this three percent increase is not small, I would say. But the uh, reality was five percent for the pre from the uh, probably yeah yeah. The but uh, uh, 17th, 18th. Uh, let's see. Uh, maybe a little bit more. Maybe uh, uh, half to. Two percent uh, could be added, but uh, I, I, uh, I, I think we're leaning towards a more high end. Let's open the floor to questions. Um, right here. Wait, um, thank you. Please introduce yourself. Sure, Henry Young with HHN Capital. Um, Excuse me. Dr. Lee, I think you have one slide. I don't recall the name of it. I think the, the author is Zhu uh, Xiaofeng or something to that effect. I don't remember the verbatim. I don't remember verbatim, but I think the content was uh, the influencer from the think tanks do, are not, do not serve as small pieces for the uh, central government. Rather, some of them criticize the uh, central party's policies, so on and so forth. I think you agree with that statement. Assuming that's true, if the influencers from these think tanks, if they openly criticize the central parties' policies, have you seen them being sort of um, in good house arrests or, or monitored closely? Maybe not to the effect of Liu Xiaobo, but you know, sort of to, to serve as a deterrent for furthering, uh, you know, disagreeing with the central parties. Uh, no. Uh from time to time, you may see some cases. Uh, but even these uh, well-known people, uh, for example, just uh, you see Hen Ruifang, you see uh, Sun Liping, they are very strong critics. They are, from time to time, they will have some trouble, but they still travel overseas, give speeches, and, uh, but um, these are very tough critics. And uh, but for uh, those in the same tanks, they may play around. They will not go that far, not like Hu Weifang's criticism. So this could be accepted, could be tolerated. So, you know, I talked to with, with some of my Chinese colleagues. I mean, you look at Chinese university, the most famous professors, majority of them are quite liberal. Majority of them quite liberal. So that's telling you a lot. It's not like uh, the time when I grew up in China. It's first of all, you think you're wrong, yourself wrong. Second, the atmosphere is so 
repressive. It's a, it's a really unfair to compare today China with you know with the past. It's a different China. It's a very complicated China. There's tremendous room of openness. There's a lot of uh, uh, debate. A lot of uh, different uh, views. Uh, so when I read Zhu Xuefeng's work, I thought that he was right. That uh, but uh, not so many scholars you know, argue that way. But uh, I think that the uh, 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 not necessarily mean that history is wrong. I give you the examples in, in, in the recent past. You can see this is mainstream think tanks, but they have different views. Uh, it, today, still, still that. And so I do not think that uh, from time to time there will be some cases, there will be some difficulties. Uh, the whole atmosphere, let me make it very clear, is not conducive. That's why I argue that it should change. But the question is, that's temporary or long-term? Or this reality, this, uh, could you say that there's some room for debate, for discourse, for thinking, independent thinking? I certainly agree with that. And I also hope, that's maybe my optimistic, uh, optimistic thinking come from, hope that this kind of uh, current type control is only temporary. And um, as a country moving to more innovation-driven economy, I think that uh, you do need to the parallel openness, transparency, independent thinking go along the way. But it may not be exactly the same time. Sometimes there's a sequence. Sometimes there's a political atmosphere you need to overcome you know, the, uh, the challenges. So, uh, but uh, it will be uh, a mistake or oversimplification to argue there's nothing happening in China. There's no complete uh, independence at all. No. Martin, you have a comment? Martin, you have a comment? I'm reaching out about a hundred questions to you, but let me just ask, on the last point, you kind of indicated that from your point of view, you expect this 19th party Congress to be kind of a game changer in terms of following the last two Congresses. And I'm wondering if one could argue, why not that the 20th party Congress or the 21st party Congress, which may even have more of a bigger generational change, could be a real game changer? I'm curious as to try. Well, uh, I probably tend to agree with you, because I think that, uh, that uh, generational change is you cannot stop generational change in every country, in every society. It's, uh, it's not that it's just you, if you want to stop, you can stop. And also, that uh, let's go back five years ago to see American uh, mainstream thinking. The mainstream thinking is that the Xi Jinping, the first term, you should not expect much. You cannot have power. You cannot get anything done. Right? This is general thinking. I challenge that. I think that you will expect a really very big change. And you look at the anti-corruption, you look at the military reform, you look at the China's emerge as a, as a, a, to the center stage of world affairs. These are all big changes. And uh, two, three years ago, no one talked about innovation in China. Think like this country is terrible innovation. But now start, people start to realize there's a, something going on in innovation in China. It's real. So our China study community lag far behind lag behind for various reasons because China changes so fast, lag behind because our academic discipline too much occupied with uh, rational models. This is what I said, what some other scholars said. You know, uh, economics become mathematics. Political science become statistics. So these kind of things you out of touch with the reality. And we also not doing well because we lack of funding. Our international studies, language studies, are declining, not increase. So that all explains our poor understanding of the outside world. And uh, so I do believe that uh, the uh, next five years will be a lot of changes. Uh, whether it be political change, political reform, openness, including media, I certainly hope. I'm not sure, because it depends on, depend on the international environment, but Xi Jinping now has capital. Where he used his capital is important. I don't want to predict whether he will stay five years later or 10 years later. This is, I think it's a silly question. The most important is to see what will happen in the 19th Party Congress. What's the composition? 
of the power of standing theory. That itself tells you that collective leadership is new with us. If there's no such a collective leadership, why bother to look at these uh, standing committee members? Just look at Xi Jinping, that's, it. that's enough. And whether a successor will be identified, whether some of the rules will be followed, some of the other rules will be changed or even improved. Right? I mean, these are all, and what kind of uh, direction in the party amendment, a constitutional amendment indicate? These are all important. But at the moment, that's a, it's, a, it's just a rumor season. There's some of the rumors that are completely groundless. Someone said that the, the, the power of the committee will be abolished. The, the, then there's a general secretary position will be abolished. It's not that easy. It involves serious, serious in, intellectual political discussion in China. So this is based on poor understanding of the country. So I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the 19th Party Congress. I'm optimistic about the future party Congress. And also, Chinese Communist Party said, this is Chinese leader said, there's no guarantee party will be with us forever. The only thing to survive is to change. It's constantly keep abreast of time. This is a wonderful thing constantly said to his bosses, whether it's Zhang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and now Xi Jinping. So that's the momentum. That expands the party, despite what happened five years ago. It's a horrible time. I saw the party really in big trouble, but they fixed some of the problem, some of the problem, and move forward. I think that's a perfect note of optimism on which we unfortunately have to end because our time is up. But the book is available for sale outside, and the author is available to autograph your copy. So please join me in thanking Chung Lee for writing the book. And for